This is At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us. This week, a prayer booth in a city where hot dog carts and graffiti are more common. Randy Owen on his faith, his belief in farm life, family, and his music. And a mother and son play back an old family story for the National Day of Listening. But first... This holiday season promises to have a little less ka-ching at retail stores. But you know, there are other ways to stuff a stocking. You can convert one of those singing greeting cards into a music speaker. You can make headphones out of an old stuffed animal. Don't know how? Ha! Got you covered. Over the next few weeks, we'll be airing a series that we call Economical. It's a guide on how to get through the holiday season in tough economic times. And we also want to hear from you. You can tell us what you'd like to hear more about or share your gift ideas with us. Write to us, upload your own photos even, and video at our website, npr.org slash gifts. Now, back to that homemade iPod speaker. Eric Wilhelm is here to walk us through the process. He's the author of Best of Instructables, Volume 1. Joins us from member station KQED in San Francisco. Thanks for being with us, Mr. Wilhelm. Thank you for inviting me. What's an instructable? An instructable is a step-by-step article that is on my website, instructables.com, that shows you how something has been made. The website is like a coffee table online. Like when you, <laughs> when you, when you make something or, or bake something or create something, you often want to put it on your coffee table so that people who come into your home ask you about it. Yeah. And so what we've done is basically just made that coffee table online so people can share the projects that they've made and how they've made them. And where'd you get all these ideas? They're all from the users of the site. So, uh, Initially, I started by posting the things that I've made. So Mm -hmm. I started with 30 projects around bicycles, breakfast, LEDs, and bookcases, Mm -hmm. uh, told all my friends about it, and they started sharing their projects. And then soon I was getting projects from people I'd never met. We have some of these projects that have been thoughtfully put together by uh, a team of our producer, Susanna George, and intern Scott Pham together. They used their classy educations to make, I'm looking at (laughs) three roses made out of electrical tape. Isn't that great? Things that look like roses. I, I know they're not roses. Duck, <sighs> duck, they do manage duck tape to spell roses. beautiful. This is a great project where you can, if you don't want to get real flowers, you can make your own flowers. And the other thing is, it's one of these deals where it's like, if you just go and buy something for somebody, mm-hmm. you know, they might, they'll be happy that you gave it to them. But if you make something for somebody, they're really going to appreciate it and keep it around. Uh, I think I might even put one of these roses in my lapel. I think it'll look beautiful. Look, this I'm really looking forward to, the, um, uh, the, the iPod speaker. Now, now, first, we took a Hannah Montana gift card that plays music. Thank you, Miley. We'll get back to you. Now, what do you do from there? You take the gift card and you remove the speaker from it and actually cut the speaker away. And then you connect the speaker to a headphone jack. And you do that by taking an old pair of earphones, uh, cutting them, and then connecting the wires from that headphone to the wires of the speaker. And then you can mount the speaker in something fun like a cereal box. Okay. Now, we, we've, we've tried that. I'm going to try it right here. I'm going to connect this. We've, put, uh, we've mounted the speaker in uh, just a mailing box we got from a PR firm. And I've plugged it into my iPhone. Everyone here will tell you I have, I have singular taste in music. Hey, it works, doesn't it? There it is. Yeah. This, of course, is the, uh, is the Broadway revival of Chicago. <laughs> I, I, it's sort of like a, a walking dog. I mean, this is not a speaker that really works well. The remarkable thing is that it works at all. The fun thing is that you made it yourself. 
Well, in this case, we have high-priced interns. <laughs> Let me put you on the spot, man, Mr. Wilhelm. Go for it. Are, are your friends actually going to get some of this stuff this year? Absolutely. One of the gifts I have given in the past yeah. is uh, marshmallow shooters. You can make a blowgun marshmallow shooter out of PVC pipe. It works remarkably well. You actually shoot your friends with the marshmallows first, and then they insist on having one of their own. So you have to make them ones, right, so to kind of even out the odds or something. Exactly. Eric Wilhelm, CEO of Instructables, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. They look just like telephone booths, but they're decorated with hands folded in prayer, and there's a place to kneel. The booths are an art installation designed to get people to discuss prayer. You can find these prayer booths in Jackson, Tennessee, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and now in New York, where NPR's Margot Adler found them on a bustling Manhattan street. You couldn't find a place less conducive to meditation than this corner of 60th Street, where cars are streaming east toward the 59th Street Bridge or down 2nd Avenue, and yet there are two prayer booths here a block apart. I'm surprised to see Ken Bronstein, the president of New York City Atheist, checking them out. So you just happened to be walking by at this very moment. At this very moment. exact moment. <laughs> but I always keep my eyes and ears open. And what Bronstein says is, art smart, this is prayer in a public place. As an atheist, when you talk about prayer, you're talking to a supernatural situation. And we say there's no supernatural, so that definitely puts in a religious category. That, to me, is the line. You know, if they want to put in private property, that's where it should go, but not in public space. I watch for an hour. No one prays. One person snaps a picture of the booth, another comments, sadly, that there's graffiti on one. Francesca Richardson says she gets by on disability payments. She notes not many people come up to the booths. It's almost like they're walking around like, what is this thing? It's a mystery. Not for her, though. She remembers she was on her way to the bank. And praying on the way over. She really needed this check to clear. First it didn't, then it did. Then she walked outside. Saw the prayer booth, went over to it, was curious, opened it up. Did you kneel? Yes, I did. And I was just praying for gratitude and thanks. That's all I'm going to say is I believe. And she is not unique. Avery Williams is seven years old. Um, well, my gerbil died, so we um, prayed for him. And my dog had a very bad leg, so we prayed for that too. The artist Dylan Mortimer, who says he is a person of faith, designed these prayer booths as part of the city's Arts in the Park program to start a dialogue about public prayer. The piece sparks a, a wide range of reactions from people loving it to people hating it to people threatening me to people, I mean, it's kind of all over the board. He says prayer is a really difficult topic, especially in a city like New York. It's a loaded topic, causes divisions, but let's face it, he says, people could be praying anywhere, sitting down, standing up, or walking, or running. And of course it's true. All you have to do is ride the New York City subways to see Jewish men davening over prayer books, Catholic women saying the rosary, and lots of people doing who knows what, eyes closed, hands folded. As Dylan Mortimer puts it, Perhaps the scary reality is there could be people praying all around you. <laughs> And that's sort of the point. Although others would argue that what people do privately is not the same thing as having something out there in public, even if it's art. Margot Adler, NPR News, New York. To understand Randy Owen's story, you got to begin with Alabama, the state, but also the country music group, his band for three decades. Randy Owen grew up in Fort Payne, Alabama, 
He and his cousins, Teddy Gentry and Jeff Cook, spent the late 1960s playing at local parties, bars, and even an amusement park. Mark Herndon, the drummer, joined the trio a decade later, and the group, Alabama, went on to sell more than 73 million records, scoring 42 number one singles, songs like Love in the First Degree, Mountain Music, and The Closer You Get. The Closer You Get The Further I Fall I'll be over the edge now In no time at all Alabama's hits were a mix of pop, country, and rock and roll. They paved gold record path for crossover stars like Dwight Yoakam and Garth Brooks. After a 2003-2004 farewell tour, Alabama retired from the road. They're still working on solo projects. Randy Owen has just released his first solo CD. It's called One on One. He's also co-author of the book Born Country, How Faith, Family, and Music Brought Me Home. Randy Owen joins us from member station WHYY in Philadelphia. Thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be with you. So what was it like to go back to writing and recording without all your old bandmates? Well, uh, the writing part of my life never changes uh, because it's uh, that's just when the inspiration comes or, or maybe you get a chance to co-write with people, which is an entirely different experience because you get a chance to, you know, they inspire you and hopefully you inspire them and you play uh, thoughts off of one another. Let me ask you about a, a track on this new CD. Okay. Um, song was written by Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Holding Everything. Holding Everything. My heart beats wild and deep Every thought in my mind has your name on it It's hard to breathe And I can't speak Think of your love and just how much I want it I happen to think that there is not a better songwriter in the country. How did she come to write a song for you? Well, uh, she and I have the same hairdresser. Actually, Cheryl works more for Dolly, and Cheryl started telling me about this great song that Dolly was working on, and she said, oh my goodness, Randy, I can hear your voice on this song, and you know, I don't know what Dolly's going to do with it or whatever, but she got permission from Dolly to bring the song over and let me hear it, and I, I, I really love the song. Then we got to thinking about, you know, Dolly probably meant this as a duet, the way she did it. I think they brought in three or four ladies to sing, see what which voice was better or whatever. And, and the one I picked was uh, the young lady that plays with me on tour, uh, Megan Mullins. And uh, so she and I sang the song together. And it's, uh, I'm very, very proud of Dolly's song and the way we did it. You've been playing more or less... Well, certainly since the time you were a youngster, but I'm, I'm thinking back to your days. Please tell us about, you played a place called The Bowery mm-hmm. in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Played for tips. Some of the toughest labor that I've ever done in my life, but when you have a reason in life and you feel like that you've got a shot to perform 
original songs, and then you have a chance to, you know, every night we had a different audience, mm -hmm. which is the beauty of the Bowery. You had people from West Virginia, New York, uh, Indiana. So you got to try different songs every night and a different approach to uh, entertaining people, and you had to entertain. So it was a great proving ground. We were the first country, country rock group to play there in the Grand Strand area. It was mostly R&B, soul, and beach music. It was a great place to learn and to learn to accept different genres of music. You did have the chance at the Bowery to play with, was she the world's largest go-go dancer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful lady, Bouncing Betty. You know, one of the things I, I enjoy about your book is that uh, you write a lot about your feeling, your, your love of farm life. Yes, absolutely. And, and how important it is, you think. It is super that, important. That young people, at least some young people, find a life on the farm. Absolutely, because what are we going to do? What are we going to do the day that we become dependent upon foreign food? And, what, and because we haven't done anything, basically, to prepare our country for, and as far as raising food and fiber for our country, uh, we really haven't put a lot of emphasis on that. And, of course, you had, I gather, you'd grown up in Alabama eating an awful lot of peas and okra. <laughs> When that's all you've got, that's all you can eat. <laughs> but that was, uh, you know, that's the way I, I learned to live and I learned to appreciate, you know, the better things, if you will, in life. I'm not sure sometimes, even through all the success, how much better they are because I lived on a farm in the rural area of northeastern Alabama on Lookout Mountain in DeKalb County near one of the most beautiful places in the world, Little River Canyon. And that river is a huge part of my life and inspiration for songs. And and I'm, I'm still very fortunate that I still live there. Um, can we talk about love and marriage? Sure. Specifically. That's yours. what I write about. I, I know. I know. Well, I'm, I'm going to make I love our... to write those mushy love songs. Well, and I... Romantic songs that yes. keep marriages together and keep everybody excited about one another. Well... Thank you, because we, we love to hear them, and I, th I think we're both talking our way to the same song. Yeah. But, but I ask, because you were that, that uh, I, I think it's safe to say, that rare, famous figure in music that has a long-term happy marriage. Uh, you <laughs> I were... don't know. I, I have a long marriage. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's been happy, uh, you know, uh, most of the time. Tell me about this song in line with love and marriage. Uh, let's pretend we're strangers for the night. Let, let's listen a little bit. Girl, put on that perfume that I bought you And wear that sexy dress you never wear I'll walk up and ask you for your number You can act like you don't care I'll tip the band to play our favorite love song Hold your clothes for a dance or two Baby, let's create that perfect moment Turn it on like we used to So have you done this? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Have I, do, have I done this? <laughs> have you and your wife pretended to be strangers for that? <laughs> Were you just clearing your throat out of the it's an interesting. It's an interesting... Uh, Story. I mean, you want to hear the story about the song? Of course I do, please. Okay. Well, John Rich and I are with Shannon Lawson over at his place, and we're drinking some really good wine one afternoon. 
we're writing on another song and it, it's really not going anywhere. So I don't know why I started telling John the story about my brother-in-law. Talking about he and his wife and my brother-in-law had told me, he said, man, you know, we're having problems getting pregnant and uh, you have any suggestions? And I was like, not really, I don't know what to say. And then I thought, well, yeah, why don't you do this? Have her go to the worst, meanest, nastiest bar in town and, you know, have several drinks. You go in there, pretend you don't know who she is, that she's a total stranger. And then you get plastered along with her. And then y'all go to the worst, you know, motel there is in town. And all the time that you're making love, be saying, God, please don't let me get her pregnant. And so then Shannon Lawson says, well, why don't we write that song? And we're like, what song? He said, well, let's pretend we're strangers for the night. Do you mind me asking, was there a, a happy resolution for the, the couple you gave such warm and loving advice to? No. Oh, all right. <laughs> That's another country song. <laughs> let's pretend we're strangers for the night. Mr. Owen, thanks so much. It's been nice talking to you. My pleasure. Randy Owen, his debut solo album is one-on-one, out now on Broken Bow Records. And his memoir, co-written with Alan Rucker, is Born Country, How Faith, Family, and music brought me home. Let's pretend we're strangers for Let me be your stranger. Today we help launch a new chapter in the StoryCorps project, a national day of listening. StoryCorps, which brings you the personal stories of everyday Americans, wants to start a new holiday tradition with you and me, David Isay. The founder of StoryCorps joins us. David, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. Great to be here. And what's the idea? Well, the National Day of Listening is a pretty simple idea. We're asking the whole country on the day after Thanksgiving, November 28th, to take out an hour and stop, find a loved one, and uh, interview them about their lives by any means necessary. If you have a video camera around the house or if you have an old tape recorder or a computer. And while we can't at StoryCorps take these interviews into the collection that goes to the Library of Congress, we have all kinds of suggestions for people on our website on nationaldayoflistening.org about how to preserve these stories and how to share these stories with your families. You know, I tried this recently. So I heard. Well, let's listen. Great. My name is Pat Simon Newman Gelbin. <laughs> but you forgot Lyons, the name you were born with, though. Begin again. That's right. okay. You can My name is Pat Lyons Simon Newman Gelbin. Way to go. Exactly. Oh, boy. <laughs> what a monogram that is. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just Scott Simon. Okay, you're Scott Simon. You're my okay. son. And we're in Chicago, Illinois, in your apartment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sitting on your living room sofa. True. Now, all of my life, I've grown up with a story that happened before I was born, yes, right? Yes, okay. yes, yes. So let's set the scene, if we could. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It was about this time of year, the early 1950s. My mother was expecting me and had a Santa Claus belly. My parents had a new German Shepherd dog named Kathy, who they just brought home to their apartment. And she was having trouble adjusting. And we were scheduled to go out for dinner this particular evening, It was out on the south side. We were about to leave, and we were meeting two other couples there. 
And it was one of these things where they would wheel carts up to the table, you know, lots, lots of food, exquisitely done. Oh, very, it was a fancy place. Mm -hmm. And we were about to leave, and we were at the elevator, and we suddenly hear the German shepherd yapping, 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 and clawing, clawing, clawing. And we knew we wouldn't keep neighbors very long that way. And your father said, let's take her with us. We can leave her in the car. I said, it's zero weather out there. He said, I know, but it'll be a heated garage, and I'll give the guy some money, and they'll take care of the dog. Don't be worried. She'll be all right. And we get to the restaurant, and your father went up to the, the valet park, and they said, they don't allow dogs in there. It's against the Board of Health ruling. So your father looked at me, and he said, here, put these on. My father handed my mother a pair of dark glasses. And uh, I, I remember there was a long bar area before you got back to the dining room. The dark glasses, the dog leading me, suddenly occurred to everyone that the dog looked like a seeing eye dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pregnant. And you could, the bar just came to a complete standstill of talking. <laughs> and you could see there was hardly a dry eye after I got through walking through that room and into the dining room. This beautiful, blind, pregnant uh, woman. And then during the dinner, you know, they're serving all these gorgeous carts of food to make a selection, and she began to wander. I thought your father was taking care of her. He thought that I was sitting on her leaf. And we became so interested in the food that suddenly the waiter said, you're not blind. <laughs> they didn't put us out. <laughs> But we weren't welcome to go back there, I'm sure. Now, uh, I have to thank you, well, for a couple of things. What have you learned from me? Well, two things. Yes. More than that, okay, like a thousand things. But here's two things that I'll list now. Yes. And and the first is manners. Really? I mean, see, I knew you'd, I knew you'd say that. What? You learned your manners from me? Don't learn you, my name that when way. He would come, when you would come back from a war zone, you would smell your food before you put it in your mouth. <laughs> you know, that's manners. Oh, boy. All mm. right. There's some exceptions, all right? But oh. no. So people hear me on the radio, mm -hmm. and they, uh, they think I have very good manners. Oh, okay. Well, yes. And that comes from you. That could oh, only come from you because you. you were so intent on making certain that I said please and thank you and was respectful to people. Oh, I see. Well, I think any parent, most parents are that way. Your father had, had lovely manners. Yeah, he did. Allow me to draw attention to what my mother just did. She deflected a compliment and moved the conversation away from her. With my mother, good manners has never been just saying please and thank you, but behaving with a kind of graciousness that Hemingway famously called grace under pressure. He said that was courage. In our show business family, my father called it class. About 25 years later, my father was gone and my mother remarried. A woman who's had four last names isn't shy about commitments. She'd married a wonderful man who got convicted of a crime. About this time of year, in the mid-1970s, the day was snowy and raw. Our family, teary and heartsick, got onto an elevator in Chicago's Federal Building. After a couple of floors, the elevator doors parted. In walked one of the men who'd been on the jury. We'd sat across from each other in the courtroom for weeks. He nodded tightly, bit his lip grimly, and looked up as the numbers on the elevator blinked down slowly. Eleven, ten, nine. He seemed a decent man who was disconcerted to see the pain he'd caused nice people. My mother turned around and told him, Good morning, sir. Well, at least we all get to go home now, don't we? Now that's class. Well, I think the thing I have learned from you, yeah. 
Number one, you're a beautiful companion. <laughs> yes. You, you, you've always been a lot of fun. And no matter what age, you know, we all got, we were compatible. We got yeah. along beautifully. It was always a, a lovely companion, which I think is so important. But you've never lost your childlike sense of, of, of enthusiasm. <laughs> you mean like the Cubs? The, the Cubs and the White Sox, too. Yeah. But, you know, he, he's never lost that. Always an appreciator. It's been a beautiful journey knowing you. I cry all the time too. I know you. Where did I get, I that? Where did I get that from? I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, I love you. And I love you, sweetheart. <laughs> and stop crying. <laughs> My mother, Patricia Lyon Simon Newman Gelbin of Chicago. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started to home. Still, it's a real good bet, the best is yet. To come. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine? You think you've seen the sun, well, you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm ups underway.
This has been At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope you join us next week.